from the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Wootson with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 4th. Today, the failure to protect Black Americans from COVID, why Trump is pulling out of the WHO, and cameras in protests. This week, we found out that George Floyd had coronavirus. Robert Samuels is a national political reporter for The Post. And on Wednesday, officials in Minnesota released the full report from Floyd's autopsy. One of the things it revealed was that he had tested positive for COVID-19 in early April. The medical examiner did not cite the virus as a factor in his death. One of the things is it shows just how widespread COVID-19 has been in Black communities. For an African-American to test positive for coronavirus has become a really unfortunately frequent tale as this pandemic has played out. So you've been reporting on the depth and the scale of how COVID really spread so quickly and so immensely within Black communities, especially in the early parts of the pandemic. So tell me about why you started looking more into that. There was a lot that we didn't know at first. We saw reports coming from big cities saying that there was a disproportionate impact happening in the big cities. But there were lots of places that didn't have data at all that prompted lots of questions about the interactions between local officials and community activists in terms of being able to try and get resources to their community or if anyone was paying attention. And why was it that that even from these preliminary numbers, it was clear that Black people were being disproportionately affected by COVID in the U.S.? Well, we know a few things now. The first thing is that a lot of Black communities have high numbers of people with these underlying health conditions, things like asthma and diabetes and obesity. But we also know that there are socioeconomic conditions that really exploit the deadly potential of COVID. Four out of five African Americans do not have a stay-at-home job, and they are also more likely to live in these multi-generational households. And so what happened was this perfect storm that made Black communities in tons of American cities really likely to see disproportionate impacts when it came to infections and deaths related to COVID-19. So once that disparity started to become clear in the early parts of the pandemic when it was hitting the U.S., how did officials respond, especially in these communities? Well, when it started to become clear, people began sending resources. Officials started sending testing sites and mobile testing vans. They started figuring out that they weren't communicating to Black communities specifically about how to prevent the virus within their own communities. But in a lot of cases, that awareness came too late. The virus had already set in. 
what were the opportunities that were missed here? Like, what are the things that people, and especially public health officials and, and political officials, what should they have been doing earlier on to protect what would ultimately become the most vulnerable population of people? One of the things that really stunned me is I think there's this narrative in this country that the COVID crisis in Black America was something that was unexpected, that took people by surprise. But the reality of it, there are lots of people who expected it and who predicted it. And there are lots of people who tried to prevent it from being so bad and so insidious. We saw in city after city after city, there are community leaders, there are local health officials who are begging the state and federal government to send both educational items like poster signs and billboards to educate people about COVID-19. And most importantly, they were asking to send testing so they could figure out who was dying in their community and the scope of its reach. In many cases, for weeks as COVID spread, state and federal officials did not heed the call of community activists and local health officials who were literally begging them for something. And what were some of the conversations that you had with these activists and these local officials about about why it was that those those requests and those pleas were not listened to? One of the people that we spent time with for this story was a man named Roland Walker. He's a pediatrician, and he's the health commissioner in Gary, Indiana, which is Indiana's only majority Black city. At the beginning of the pandemic in early March, Dr. Walker asked the state to send mobile testing sites to his city because he knew he couldn't compete for tests on the private market. The city had very little money. And he knew because of the conditions in his community that they might be adversely affected. But the state at first said that sending testing sites to any place in Indiana was against their protocol. And then... When they changed the protocol, they sent the testing sites to an area that was four times as white as Gary, Indiana, and also twice as wealthy. This was really hard to fathom for Dr. Walker. And here's the thing, being in this tiny black city, relatively tiny, in the state of Indiana, that meant he didn't feel comfortable bringing up the subject of race. Hmm. And uh, his mayor said, let's not talk about this in racial terms because it might cause more questions. People might get more upset. And this was a pattern that we saw at the very beginning in cities across the country and in counties across the country with people saying, should we talk about this with a racial lens or should we not? Even when there was the first whiff that there might have been a disparate impact toward Black populations, they weren't sure if they wanted to discuss it because they're afraid of stigma and they're afraid that there'd be a lasting effect of stereotype that would be placed on those Black communities. Huh. Because that really surprises me. I, I mean, I think that we're generally aware of the disparate impacts of 
all kinds of health issues on specifically Black Americans. And it feels like that health officials should be able to talk openly about that. But what you're saying is that in some of these cases, it wasn't just that they wanted to not acknowledge the impacts of COVID on Black people or or not help Black communities, but that there was also a fear that you would hurt Black communities by drawing attention to how much COVID was being spread in these communities, that it would basically make these communities look bad. Absolutely. And what we saw at the beginning were two very strong competing narratives. And even though they were divergent, they both resulted in less help initially for African-American communities. The first being this rumor that started and was proliferating on social media saying Black people were somehow immune to the disease. Wait, is that a real thing? That is a real thing. Now, People who study the history of public health in this country, they've seen it before. We saw it with AIDS. We saw it with mental health. We see it in the ways we discuss things like breast cancer, that somehow it's a white people thing for hosts of reasons. So you had these ideas starting to pepper and proliferate within the Black community. And then for the people who actually saw some of the trends, they began wondering, well, we don't want to make this a Black people thing because if we say that, one, it might provoke a conversation that leaders in more conservative states don't want to have. And also, we don't want to put another stain on African-American communities, which are still often stereotyped as being poor, hard to work with, and in many cases, lacking access to health care. And I think it is worth pointing out in fairness that as it's become more clear nationwide how much of the impact of COVID has been specifically on Black communities, on poor communities, also Latino communities and Indigenous communities, that that is part of the reason why you have a lot of white communities who are like, oh yeah, we can totally open back up now because we're not the ones affected. It's these other places that need to be staying shut down and have their businesses closed. But like, white people are going to get through this fine. I think there is a belief that that's true. And one thing that that presupposes is that there's no interconnectedness within our country. And the truth of the matter is that in places that can open up, the people who are on factory lines in those places, the people who are working in grocery stores in those places, often come from communities that still have not fully understood the reach of COVID-19 because of the lack of testing and because of that initial lack of awareness. And so these things snowball in very real ways. So I'm wondering, after all the reporting that you've done on this, do you think that this is changing, that these communities are getting more help now than they did a couple months ago? And also, how do you see this linked with what is happening around the country in terms of protests and activism that is about something that's not COVID, but I think is sort of about COVID too? Well, when the initial data started coming out from places like New Orleans and Milwaukee and Detroit that were a little bit more proactive in terms of talking about coronavirus and releasing data by race, it did set off a scramble across the country. So then you saw an 
influx of testing within those places. But I think it's also important to note something else. In Gary, for example, and this happened in a number of places, when all that public pressure was put on them, they actually sent the mobile testing site there. It stayed for two weeks, and then the testing van left. Now, remember, this is a city that still relies on donations and really the benevolence of other people to have enough testing within a community. So you have all these places opening up. You have people saying that they're ready to move on for COVID-19. But for someone like Dr. Walker, this pandemic still remains a pretty great unknown. And I think one of the things that's important to note is with this health disparity being like so many other health disparities in which leaders said, hey, please bring us help because our communities will be adversely affected. And to see those warnings go unheeded and in some cases ignored, it only added fuel to the frustration about inequality within this country. Yeah, I do think that between seeing this video of George Floyd dying over the course of eight minutes and then seeing how many people have died over the last few months, that it gives this very distinct impression that, like, our lives do not matter, that when Black people die, it is not a big deal. I mean, think about what the past three months have been for Black communities. First, there was this disease. You're seeing death. You're seeing joblessness. After that, you start seeing these images, these horrifying images again of people in their last breaths at the hands of the police. And at some point, this stew just becomes overwhelming. It bubbles up. And I think that's what we're seeing today on the streets, the overflow of anger of an incredibly tumultuous past few months, specifically, but also of an incredible hard time to be Black in America in general. Robert Samuels is a national political reporter for The Post. Chinese officials ignored their reporting obligations to the World Health Organization and pressured the World Health Organization to mislead the world. The president has been warning now for really more than a month that he wants to either freeze all new funding to the organization or withdraw completely. Then last week at a pretty strange press conference on China, he sort of just tossed out there. We will be today terminating our relationship with the World Health Organization and redirecting those funds to other worldwide and deserving urgent global public health needs. And then he left the stage without taking any questions. My name is Emily Rahala and I cover foreign affairs. 
So before we get into why President Trump is doing this, I think it's helpful to just understand, like, what exactly is the World Health Organization? What is it supposed to do? And historically, what has the U.S.'s relationship been with the WHO? So the WHO is a UN agency, uh, called what's called a specialized agency, and it plays really a central role in coordinating the response in times of emergency, like now, but also in the provision of basic health care, vaccine programs all around the world. The U.S. has always and continues to play a really central role in the organization. So the U.S. was around when these rules were being drawn up, when the organization was being imagined. And now, all through this crisis and others, U.S. experts, scientists, doctors, and officials really play a central role in shaping how this organization runs. So then if the U.S. does have this pretty central role in the WHO, then why is President Trump pulling us out? Since the outbreak of the coronavirus crisis, the WHO has faced criticism for its handling. Through January and February, a lot of people, not just President Trump, in fact, he was praising the organization at the time, criticized it for being too quick to repeat claims from China about the coronavirus crisis. But by March, as the United States became consumed by its own crisis, President Trump really changed his tune. He sort of latched on to this critique of the organization that was already out there and started to blame the WHO for not sounding the alarm. And is there evidence to support this idea that the WHO has been too favorable to China or hasn't demanded enough accountability from China as the pandemic has gone on? Through January and February, there were a lot of people saying, you know, why is the WHO praising China so much? Why is the WHO repeating Chinese claims about the coronavirus when they might not be true? So this was a critique that was already out there. What President Trump has done is sort of latch onto that critique and expanded it. Instead of just critiquing specific actions by the WHO, he's just turned the critique into a way to deflect blame and to, you know, his critics alleged deflect from what's happening in the United States. So when he says that we're terminating our relationship with the WHO, that means taking all of our money that we give to this organization, taking that away and diverting it elsewhere. But are we still going to have the ability to help make decisions on global health policy and be a part of that process? At this point, this is this is mostly a big unknown. U.S. funding to the WHO is split up into two pieces. One piece of that is sort of like a membership due for states. And that money, uh, it's not clear if he can actually cut it without a nod from Congress. There's another pile of money that's known as a voluntary contribution. And this is money given to U.S. agencies to support programs that the United States want to support. Things like polio eradication, um, vaccines, basic health care. So that's the funding piece of it. What he said on Friday suggested he also wanted to withdraw completely. Now, those who study the organization and experts are very split on whether the president can unilaterally pull out of the World Health Organization. And that's because the World Health Organization's constitution is actually a treaty and the United States has ratified that treaty. So it's not clear whether the U.S. can just quickly pull out. And um, if it were to do so, it still leaves a question of what about all of the work that the United States does with the organization, all the U.S. representatives, all the U.S. trained uh, and American scientists and doctors who are working there. That's still very much an open question. 
And of course, you know, this would be a big deal regardless of of what time it was happening. But the fact that we're in the middle of a pandemic, I wonder what public health experts say about how this will affect the U.S.'s response to coronavirus and the global response to coronavirus. There are people who say, you know, Trump has some points when it comes to the WHO's handling of this crisis. Even among those people, there's very a very, very broad sense that cutting the funding right now in the middle of the coronavirus crisis is not a good idea and will have a negative impact on this crisis, as well as all sorts of other public health issues around the world. What are the potential consequences and what are the bad things that could happen because the U.S. isn't working closely with the WHO? So one example that we looked at was polio eradication. Polio is a disease that attacks the spinal cords of babies and children. And for decades now, the United States has been working with partners around the world to try to eradicate this disease. And the international community got pretty close. Cases were way down. This is um, something that could be on the line if the funding is cut. Right now, because of the coronavirus crisis, polio vaccination campaigns are on hold. And when the lockdowns end, these health workers are going to be going back out there to try and resume. This is also a sort of a, a network of, of vaccination programs and healthcare workers that could help one day deliver the coronavirus vaccine. And the idea that this program could lose both money, could be could lose backing and support at this time is very scary to public health experts. Another thing that I think is is interesting and worth considering is what this means for public health diplomacy beyond this crisis. Right now, the World Health Organization is is able to some extent to, to bring countries together. And I think what might happen if the U.S. pulls out is sort of a, a fractured or, or polarized public health diplomacy system where China is leading one set of initiatives, the United States is leading one set of initiatives, and other countries are pursuing public health diplomacy on their own. This crisis, more than anything in in recent memory, has shown the way that health is not sort of a national concern, right? The virus started in one place and it spread all over the world. And when it comes to a vaccine for the coronavirus, who's going to coordinate how that's distributed? Who gets what access to the vaccine at what time? The World Health Organization, for its problems and for the criticism, some of it legitimate that it faces, could really play a central role in that. But if it has been sort of fractured and torn apart and undermined, it could affect, you know, the way that a vaccine is or is not distributed in the future. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. And now, one more thing about the role of cameras in protests. So we took a look at all of these cameras that all of us are using or seeing or in the view of all the time and how that affects the protests. So there are smartphone cameras and Nest and Ring home cameras and security camera footage from businesses and traffic cameras. Basically, there are just cameras pretty much everywhere. 
I'm Rachel Lerman. I'm a breaking news technology reporter for The Post. It's basically a double-edged sword because these cameras that are everywhere are helping protesters, but they can also be a cause for concern for protesters because what's happening is that we have smartphones just everywhere and people are using them to record all these things. And without the footage, we might not have been able to get the same kind of video that we got of George Floyd. On the flip side, what we also have are all of these surveillance cameras watching people at all times. And protesters are actually quite afraid that those kind of security camera footage could be used to identify them. We've heard from several people that this is something that's really top of mind for them. So they're doing a few different things to sort of try to prevent this. Some of them told me, you know, they were wearing hats and kind of like plain clothes to avoid being possibly identified. Other people said that they were told to turn their phones on airplane mode to try to stop location tracking, which is something that they're concerned about. Or they say that they're taking screenshots of photos that they want to share online because the screenshots then erases the metadata, which can include some identifying information like device information or location information. Another thing that is kind of interestingly possibly helping protesters who want to avoid being identified is because this is taking place during the pandemic, so many people are wearing face masks and facial recognition systems are not very good at being able to identify people if they have any sort of face covering on. It can concern people that we're entering a more increased surveillance state because sometimes people want to do things and not be able to be identified. Now, the flip side of that is some people would say, oh, it provides more transparency and more visibility. But I think what it really boils down to is a lot of people are starting to assume that they're being watched at all times, even if they don't necessarily set out to be. Rachel Lerman is a tech reporter for The Post. And that's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode of Post Reports, a conversation about the history of violent protest in the U.S. When we see how people are so upset about what's happening in the streets, and they're more upset about that than they are the death of George Floyd, I say our priorities are messed up. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 